Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. We don't have time to begin to parse through that level of nonsense this morning, but you can see where deconstruction has taken Michael Gungor. You say, is this really a big deal? Is deconstruction really something that a bunch of young people are getting involved with? Because I've never heard the word, and it seems like we could have just stayed in Luke this morning. Well, there's now a podcast and YouTube channel called The Deconstructionist that has over 16 million subscribers across all platforms. I'd say that it's becoming a pretty big deal. The purpose, they say, is to help people take their faith apart and build a new one. Doesn't matter if it reflects the Bible, just a faith that your authentic self can go to bed at night at peace with. Former DC Talk member Kevin Max has deconstructed. He calls himself now an ex-evangelical. That's the popular term for those who have deconstructed and left the faith. Derek Webb, the former co-lead singer of the Christian band Cademan's Call, publicly deconstructed his faith through his music and also through social media posts. And I don't know how to make sense of this, but he is now on staff at a church where his job is to help other people deconstruct their faith. I use that term church very loosely. Josh Harris, not long after announcing he wasn't a Christian anymore, began offering a $275 course on his website where he'll coach you on how to deconstruct your faith, because you got to keep making money off the industry of religion somehow. To his credit, after everybody went crazy about it, he stopped charging for the course. The problem of young people leaving the church isn't new. We've been seeing this for decades. People head off into college, they head off into the workforce, they find a new friend group that doesn't attend church, and they fall out of the habit. They take a class that makes them question long-held Christian beliefs at a university, and uh, they begin to let what was the faith of their parents drift away, and they disconnect themselves from it. Maybe they just get out of uh, that that you know, uh, that habit of going to church and, and reading the Bible. And, of course, pastors like me would combat this by saying uh, to someone like Sarai, right, to someone like a Sarah Kanicki, to these young people whose names we've mentioned this morning that are graduating, we say, well, when you get to that college campus, you got to get involved on, uh, in a campus ministry right away. you got to get connected to a local church right away. If we have young people in our church who are graduating from high school and they're leaving Pastor David's student ministry and they're looking at what is next, what do I do now, we would say to them, well, you need to go to a small group, you need to go to the young adult ministry, you need to make new connections in the church and continue to mature in the body of Christ. Or we would give them a resource like Tim Keller's Reason for God or a devotional book or a Bible reading plan to help them stay in the Word. But now, leaving the faith is not something happening to young people merely by a string of circumstances. There is now a codified process, a process they are being encouraged to engage in, and it's called deconstruction. It is the new false gospel. Satan has a new Trojan horse that he is rolling into the church, and it is heralded as this honorable process of examining your beliefs. But inside the Trojan horse is the same rotten temptation of the garden, and that temptation is to doubt God, to doubt the Word of God, to doubt the character of God, to doubt God Himself. And so here's what really needs to be deconstructed this morning. It's not the faith of our young people, and it's not your faith, it's doubt. It's doubting God. That's what needs to be deconstructed, not faith. 
And the Bible gives us tools for deconstructing doubt. So the text I want to look at is 1 Timothy 4. I think it'll be helpful for us. 1 Timothy is one of two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul saying, all right, Timothy, you're going to be a minister of the gospel. Here's how you run your life. And 1 Timothy is saying to him, Timothy is a minister of the gospel. Here is how you run the church. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lists out the qualifications for an overseer or an elder or a pastor. Those are all interchangeable terms. Uh, and he also lists out the qualifications of a deacon. Um, pastors serve the church by leading the church. Deacons help lead in the church by serving the church, right? And so he gives us qualifications for the two offices. And then he gives us a summary of the sort of gospel that's going to be proclaimed by faithful pastors and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is a summary of the gospel. Deacons and pastors and those that would follow them should hold to this faith, but there are some who will not hold to this faith. They will depart from the faith, and this is what Paul's talking about in chapter 4. So I'm going to read the first eight verses. We're just going to focus on verses 6 through 8, though. So um, let me start reading 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer." If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Father, I pray that this time in your word would be profitable. I pray you would speak Lord, to us, and that you would give us uh, ears to hear, and that you would give us eyes to see. And I pray that what we learn this morning, Lord, we would apply to the heart, and that it would pass from the heart to the lips, and then into conversation, and that it would be good for our witness, Lord, out in this lost world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I've got three points, and I'll get to the first one here in just a moment, and it comes from what we see in verse 6. We have Paul telling Timothy that he will be a good servant of Christ Jesus if he puts these things in front of the brothers, right? You see that in verse 6. Now, what are the these things Paul's talking about? Well, it's the truth of verses 4 and 5. That everything created by God is good and is not to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving and it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There were false teachers running around in the church and they had left the faith and they were devoting themselves to all sorts of bizarre things. So in verse 1, Paul says that they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, which is probably just Paul's way of saying that they have bought into the satanic message of the culture around them and they have left the faith in order to get in step with that culture. 
They're also forbidding marriage and certain foods we see in verse 3. Why they're doing this, again, we don't know, and we really don't need to know. The picture Paul is painting is enough, right? That these are people who have left the faith. They are following the world, and they are adopting the rules of the world as they follow the world. And so Paul combats this in verses 4 and 5 by saying, look, if God gave the food, you can eat it. If God gives you somebody to marry within biblical regulations, obviously, you can marry them. Everything he made is good. It's to be received with thanksgiving. And so in verse 6, he says to Timothy, put these things before the brothers, which means Timothy is not just to correct wrong belief as a pastor. He is to put the truth of God's word before the church. It's not just, hey, don't believe this. It's, hey, don't believe this, but you need to believe this because this is what God's word says. So as an overseer, as an elder, as a pastor, Timothy is to teach the word. And he's prepared for this work. Paul tells Timothy if he teaches the word, he'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Timothy has been trained in the words of faith. Some of your translations may say that Timothy has been completely nourished in the words of faith. The Greek word that translates uh, there, it, it can translate into either English phrase. Uh, it can mean the good doctrine that you have, uh, the word of faith. Uh, it could also mean being completely nourished. And we shouldn't be surprised that they can mean the same thing. You can't train properly if you don't nourish, Right? I once heard uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, the pro wrestler, say, you can't outrun a bad diet, okay? So part of true training is to eat so well that your body recovers faster and that your body gets stronger faster and builds back muscle faster. And so for the pastor and really any Christian, the Bible is like good food. It nourishes us. It prepares our bodies for competition and growth. And then he mentions the good doctrine that Timothy has followed. Timothy is good doctrine because Timothy has made it a habit to sit at the feet of godly men like Paul and to learn good doctrine so that he would have a well of truth that he could teach from as he proclaims the word of God. So Timothy's been nourished by the word in his training. He's been following the good doctrine that he's been taught. And what that means is that he is in a position to contend for the truth in the, uh, in the church because he has saturated himself with truth. So this is point number one. Doubt is deconstructed when we saturate ourselves with truth. Doubt is deconstructed when we saturate ourselves with truth. Deconstructionism is an idea born out of the philosophy of the French speaker Jacques Derrida, who basically argued no person, no book, can claim that they know absolute truth because everything they believe is just a human construct that somebody convinced them was true. So we need to deconstruct all these human constructs, and we need to dismantle tradition, and we need to dismantle traditional modes of thought, and we need to dismantle traditional sources of information. And so when you hear Josh Harris or Michael Gungor or anyone else come along and say they are deconstructing, understand what that means. They're saying, I am coming to realize that the Christian faith is something that has been made up by human beings. I am coming to realize there is no absolute truth in the Bible, and I am coming to realize I cannot trust traditional institutions like the church or traditional um, sources of information like pastors and preachers. That's what they're saying. Now, it doesn't start that way. 
The thing about the philosophy of deconstructionism is it sounds kind of harmless. In fact, you could argue there's a level of deconstructing we should all be doing. Paul Tripp says this. He says, we should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it. Because our faith becomes a culture. A culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. And we better do some deconstructing or we're going to find ourselves again and again in these sad places. Now, God bless Paul Tripp for trying to redeem this term deconstructionism, which is what he's doing. And what he's saying is that our faith gets so intertwined with the culture we live in that there are times we need to stop and go, you know, I think this idea is more American than Christian. And I need to separate this from my faith. I need to be biblical and, 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 and not be so shaped by my culture. So my politics should not inform my faith. The prophet Isaiah should, Right? Abusive pastors should not define my faith. The book of John should. My American citizenship does not define my faith. My citizenship in heaven, which the book of Philippians chapter 3 tells me about, that's what should define my faith, right? So what Tripp is saying is we need to constantly make sure harmful voices of the culture are not sneaking in and uh, shaping what we say we believe when it comes to the Bible and, and when it comes to the Lord. Separating your faith from harmful cultural influence is necessary. And I think it's admirable that Paul Tripp, who's a faithful brother, uh, I think it's admirable he's tried to take this term deconstruction and make something positive out of it. But understand that when you talk to a full-on deconstructionist who would encourage you to deconstruct your faith and your children to deconstruct their faith, this is not what they have in mind. It may start with separating your faith from, from harmful cultural influences, but then there's another step. The next step is to dismantle doctrine. And if you don't believe me, just listen to uh, Jamin Hubner in his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, where he says, Deconstruction simply refers to the process of questioning one's own beliefs that were once considered unquestionable due to new experiences, reading widely, engaging in conversations with the other, meaning people who do not uh, believe what we believe, and interacting in a world that is now more connected and exposed to religious diversity. In other words, deconstruction is dismantling Christian beliefs because your experience and your education and your scientific knowledge has concluded that the doctrines you once held to are now harmful or obsolete. So it doesn't stop with separating your faith from harmful cultural influences and moves on to killing off major Christian doctrines. And of course, when you hear from those who have deconstructed and they talk about the doctrines they are forsaking, they don't make these changes to be out of step with culture. They don't look at biblical Christianity and go, it's too in step with culture, I've got to make changes so I can be more of a radical. Absolutely not. They want to do away with the parts of faith that would allow them to be in step with culture. And so, let's let go of Jesus being the only way to heaven, because that puts us out of step with culture. Let's let go of biblical sexual ethics regarding God's design for two genders, or sex being confined to the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, because this puts us uh, out of step with culture. Let's let go of the doctrine of hell and eternal judgment, because it puts us out of step with culture. And then the process is complete once someone has deconverted. Deconstructionism is not deconversion. However, deconversion is the fruit of deconstruction. Deconstruction is the process. Deconversion is the fruit. 
And despite claims of the contrary, it is the fruit that so many professors and podcasters and authors want you and your kids to eat. They'll say deconversion is only one of the results of deconstruction, but it's the result they want. Deconstructionists want you to keep doubting God until you don't believe God at all. Consider this popular treat from, uh, from uh, deconstructionist Derek Webb. He's got a lot of retweets on Twitter. He said, Dear evangelical friends, you have every right to deeply and thoughtfully question your invisible reality without shame or fear of attack. Doubt, then doubt your doubts. Pull that thread and don't stop pulling. The only way is through. I know a lot of you are probably sitting here thinking, man, this feels like a niche topic. Did we need a whole Sunday? A few Christians are leaving the faith. It's always been the way it is. Big deal, right? I think it is a big deal because the movement has a name and books are being written and college classes are being taught and podcasts are being recorded and the ideas of deconstructionists are filling our children's social media feeds. And I wanted to stop and I wanted to address the growing trend because I believe a lot of it will land in the laps of our children as they leave our homes. And by the way, most of them will not go, I am deconstructing. These ideas are going to fall in their lap and they're going to believe them and they're going to start to eat and drink them without questioning it the way a fish swims in water without ever stopping to go, am I breathing water? Am I swimming in water? Is there an entire society of people walking out around out there just breathing air on two legs? They're not thinking about that. They just swim around and breathe the water. And for many of our children, this is what they're doing. They are, they are drinking this stuff in without even realizing it. And so I wanted to stop and address our graduates and all of you because I want to be able to sprout the predator in the wild before it's too late. How does a young person make sure they don't fall into the trap of doubting God's word? How does any person uh, be sure that they avoid that trap? Well, the answer is found in verse 6. In the same way that Timothy is equipped to battle falsehood because he saturated himself with the truth of God's word, we will be able to combat the temptation to doubt God by keeping ourselves fully immersed in the truth of the Bible. Deconstructionism argues you cannot know absolute truth. The Bible says otherwise. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In John 8, as Jesus is speaking, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, as he's praying to the Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus believed in the absolute objective truth of the Word of God. He held to that, as should we. And if Jesus believed that about the Bible, then we should immerse ourselves in it. Because all of the trustworthy, existence-divining truth uh, that we need is found in the Scriptures. Because in the Scriptures, God has not spoken to us in maybes, but in definites. He is definitely God, right? He tells us that Jesus is definitely his son. He tells us that he has definitely gifted the spirit to the church. He tells us that you must definitely repent of your sin and definitely believe in God's son in order to definitely be saved. So what we must do is take the ordinary means that God has given to us and use them to receive and to understand extraordinary truth. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism refers to the ordinary means in which we come to understand the knowledge of God. And those ordinary means include reading our Bibles and listening to other people teach us about the Bible and reading good books by trustworthy authors that move us along in our understanding of the truth and getting familiar with church history to see how the church has interpreted Scripture and what they have accepted and rejected over the last 2,000 years. Attending a small group or a Bible study and learning with others. Right, Using all the, the tools of, of, of the modern age that God has given us to understand His Word. These are the ordinary means. We use them to come to a sufficient understanding of God's Word. And if we commit ourselves to these things, submerge ourselves in the truth of the Bible by using these means, we are in a much stronger position to deconstruct our doubts. And you can't wait. So our young people heading off into college... Don't wait till you get there and say, well, I'm going to start my Bible reading plan day one in the dorm. It's too late. You need to read your Bible every day this summer. Prepare yourself for what is to come. Be vigilant about it. Do the work of studying God's Word now so you'll be strong in the truth in the face of temptation. Heading off into the workforce, read your Bible now. You don't want to wait until you're standing there with that fruit in your hand and the devil whispering in your ear. Prepare yourself now like Timothy and prepare others from your own knowledge of the truth that God has given you through his word. Let's keep moving. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. Last two points take less time than the first, just in case you're worried. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. This is the equivalent of Paul saying, don't have anything to do with old wives' tales. In fact, the Greek literally says, have nothing to do with worldly fables only fit for old women. So number two, doubt is deconstructed by rejecting false teaching. By the way, I found that old men believe a lot dumber things than old women, so maybe we should call it old man's tales, I don't know. I'm going to become an old man, so don't get mad at me about that. God willing, you know, God willing. Doubt is deconstructed by rejecting false teaching. It's the other side of the coin from verse 6. Saturate yourself with the truth, but on the other hand, reject false teaching and flee from it. This This is what's at the heart of deconstructionism. Listen to me. The lie that Satan tells through this philosophy of deconstructionism is this. That there is a version of you without faith in Jesus that's better off than the version of you that believes in Jesus. That's the lie they're selling. You want to be your authentic self? You want to be free? then you got to shed off this, this Jesus stuff. you got to shed off this, this made-up metaphysical reality that you're holding yourself to. It's not real. Get rid of that. Then you can be your authentic self. Then you can be free. Then you can really pursue happiness. That's the lie. There's a version of you that's better off without Jesus. That's the lie. You want a life without guilt? You want a life where you're in step with the culture? You want a life where your conscience is free from the pressure of religious conviction? Just deconstruct, baby. You'll be okay. The Bible tells us what to do with teaching like this. We don't need to guess. The Bible's clear. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. God's game plan for dealing with this stuff is this. Warn them and then get out. You warn and then you flee. You warn those caught in error, and then you run. It's like if there was a fire in a building. That fire starts, you smell the smoke, you feel the door handle, it's hot, and you tell a group of people, you're like, hey guys, we got to go out this window right here, there's a big fire, everybody in this room is going to burn if we don't get out this window. And they go, you're an idiot, man. Come on, somebody's just cooking, doorknob's a little hot, it's summer. Everything's fine, you are overreacting. At that point, you don't go, all right, well, let's play some Monopoly. I guess we'll just hang out, you know? You're like, well, I warned you, I did my part, and now I'm going out the window. I'm out of here, you know what I mean? You warn, and then you flee. You don't hang around because you know the fire can kill you. We don't hang around the false teaching because we know the flames will burn us. We warn, and we flee. And these two truths go together, right? The more we saturate ourselves in the truth, the more likely we are to run and the less likely we're going to be to fall into the trap of deconstructionism or any other empty philosophy. In Hebrews 5, the writer says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the more you distinguish good from evil, the better you're going to be at distinguishing good from evil. The more you are discerning, the more you'll grow in discernment. The more you eat the solid food of the word, the more mature you will be. And from that place of maturity, you'll be able to see false teaching for what it is, You warn people and then you flee. This is why young people tend to be better targets for false teachers, and it's why deconstructionism is preying upon millennials and and Gen Z. Because a lot of you older brothers and sisters in the church, you've seen a hundred heresies come 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 through in your lifetime. You're like, I've seen this before. Right? You've been discerning good and evil for so long when Satan comes slithering into the garden with some new philosophy, you're a lot faster to go. Oh, that's just that thing from 20 years ago wrapped up in a different package. Burn it up and get rid of it. We're not falling for that. We've seen this before. A lifetime of discerning has put you in a place where you dismiss the lies with more readiness. But younger believers, younger in age, younger in maturity, are more susceptible to these schemes. And so younger believers, you've got to remember what the Bible tells you to do. Warn and flee. Warn and flee. Last point this morning. So what do we do? We know we need to saturate ourselves in the truth. We know we need to reject falsehood. And then number three, doubt is deconstructed when we train ourselves for godliness. We need to train for godliness. 
This is how we prepare ourselves. My wife exercises a lot more than me. She's actually lifting like a scary amount of weight these days. Uh, she's preparing for a competition. I'm pretty sure she could lift me, okay? Uh, maybe even throw me around. It, it is both attractive and intimidating, you know what I mean? Um, but weight training is good for the human body. It's good. It burns calories more efficiently, it decreases abdominal fat, it improves your heart health, it improves uh, the health of your bones, it lowers the risk of injury while you're doing other things, it scares your husband a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, weight training is good. But as good as physical training is, Paul says godly training is better. Because godly training has value not just for this life, but for the life to come. So when we train for godliness, we're training for something that doesn't just impact the present age, it impacts eternity. Prayer is not just a discipline for this life, it's a discipline for the life to come because our prayers touch eternity. I think about uh, our sister Jane Hudgens, I'm not sure if she's here this morning or not, but I think about Jane praying for years and years and years for her husband Lee to come to the Lord, and after praying for decades, Lee repented of his sin and he put his faith in Jesus. Jane's prayers touched eternity, didn't they? Our time in the Word helps us live in the here and now, but it also helps us to press on so we can lay hold of the crown of life, which will be ours for eternity. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that teaches us to depend on God now, but it also teaches us to depend on God so we may persevere all the way to the end, and then hear, well done, good and faithful servant, as we begin our eternity. Worship on earth is a rehearsal for the worship of eternity. Sharing the gospel is a part of our training that clearly extends beyond this life. Because you lead somebody to the Lord, their lives aren't just changed in this age. Their eternal destination has been changed for the age to come. So, do you see how training for godliness physically in this life, it, it, it's got an expiration date, right? Its benefits end with the grave, and yet our training for godliness has results that last into the resurrection. So I'm not telling you to forsake physical exercise for spiritual training this morning. Do them both, but understand the spiritual training is the most important. And the more we are committed to this training, the less of a foothold doubt is going to be able to have in our lives. Because spiritual training is not something you do apart from God. Training for godliness draws you into intimacy with God. These disciplines of prayer and Bible study and fasting and worship and evangelism and giving, it all pulls you closer to the Lord and farther away from the sin that wants to separate you from your Creator. So if you want to avoid the pitfalls of deconstructionism, you want to be able to make the right choice when faced with the decision to believe God or doubt God, then you must train for godliness. So young people, if you're about to go to college, the most important things you learn will not be in a classroom with a professor. It's going to be in your dorm with your Bible open. It's going to be in a church with a preacher in a pulpit. It's going to be in your prayer closet, humbled and contrite before the Lord. It's going to be where you train for godliness. That's going to be the most important things you learn over the next four years. You're about to go into the workforce. The most important things you learn are not going to come in your orientation training first day on the job. It's going to be learned in a small group with other Christians who are seeking to understand God's word together. They'll be learned from a day of fasting and depending on Jesus. They'll be learned through the sacrifice of tithing to God faithfully. Train, 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 because your training will put you in a position to stand on God's truth 
to deconstruct the doubts that Satan tries to discourage you with. The band's going to come and they're going to return back to the stage, lead us in one last song of dedication. But to everybody, young and old, graduates and those of you who are maybe approaching retirement, and everybody in between and on the other side of those, those parameters, for all of us, we must be saturated with the truth. We must reject falsehood. We must train for godliness. We must recognize doubt for what it is. It's not a virtue. It is no virtuous thing to doubt God. Can you be honest with your doubts and bring them to another brother and sister and say, I'm really struggling with this issue. I'm really struggling with this doctrine. What do you believe about this? How do you interpret this scripture? Of course, that's part of the training for godliness. Absolutely. But it is not a virtuous thing to doubt the word of the Lord, no matter what the world tells you. And there is no freedom to be found in being your authentic self. Freedom is found in authentically submitting yourself and surrendering yourself to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. So saturate yourself with that gospel truth. Reject the lies. Train for godliness. Deconstruct the doubt. Let's pray. Father, it is, uh, it's dangerous out there. These are dangerous times for your beloved, the church. Because uh, we look out there, Lord, and we see so many lies. And we hear so many voices that are loud and they're shouting. And they're calling for us to doubt you, Lord. And they're calling for us to think that there is freedom and there is peace and there is salvation and there is hope outside of the name of Jesus. But the reality is there isn't. So I do pray for our graduates that are about to head off into college, and I pray that they would see that they are, 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 are like a, a leaf from a vine, and they have to stay connected to the vine. They have to remain in Christ. And I pray that they would be determined that they will abide in you, and that they would heed the words of Scripture this morning, and that they would saturate themselves with the truth, and that they would reject the lies of the world, and that they would train for godliness, believing, believing what your word says about the age that is to come and the glory that awaits your people there. For our young people, God, who are going to be um, leaving high school and going straight into the workforce, Lord, we give you thanks because we need more believers. We need more brothers and sisters in auto body shops. We need more brothers and sisters at NASA Langley. We need more brothers and sisters in the Navy and in the Army and in the Air Force and in the Coast Guard. And the Marines. We need more brothers and sisters living for you out in this world. And so I pray that they would heed these truths in the same way. And that they would recognize that while they may not go and sit in a public university classroom and, and, and maybe hear the teaching of deconstructionism confrontationally face to face, it's still out there because it is the water we're swimming in as Americans these days. And so I pray, God, that they would stay rooted in your truth and that you would use them as a, an incredible witness, Lord, in their workplace. And for the rest of us, God, who um, are going about our jobs or are enjoying retirement or are thinking that heaven could be just a few years away, God, I pray that you would remind us all that sin crouches at the door and it waits to destroy us and we must rule over it. And that includes the sin of doubting you. 
Every day the enemy wants us to doubt you, Lord, and every day we must heed what your word has said this morning, and we must believe. We must believe. Because faith truly is virtuous, Lord. But doubt is just a rotten lie from the pit of hell. Help us see it for what it is. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can stand together now and the band's